This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Ian Drake. I'm with the New Books Network, and we are joined today by Jonathan W. White, an associate professor of American studies at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, a senior fellow with Christopher Newport University's Center for American Studies. He serves on the board of directors of the Abraham Lincoln Association. He is president of the Abraham Lincoln Institute, serves on the Ford's Theater Advisory Council, and is the vice chair of the Lincoln Forum. His previous books include Emancipation, The Union Army, and The Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln, and Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War. He joins us today to discuss his new book, which he has co-authored with Anna Gibson Holloway. It's entitled, Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. Jonathan, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is a book about, uh, as the title implies, and as the beautifully illustrated front cover uh, notes, this is the monitor and the famous battle between it and what is popularly remembered as the Merrimack um, from the Civil War. So uh, there have been a fair amount of books written on this one event, the battle between these two so-called ironclads, uh, and uh, it's a famous episode from the war. So what does your book add to this? Well, my co-author, Anna Holloway, was for many years a vice president of collections at the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia. And the turret of the monitor and thousands of other artifacts are being conserved at the museum there. And there's a wonderful exhibit called the USS Monitor Center where you can go and see a lot of the artifacts that have been brought up from the wreck site of the monitor. So one of the things that our book does that others don't is we not only look at a history of the monitor from its conception until its sinking, but then we also look at the recovery effort and the conservation effort, which is ongoing. And so even as we were writing the book, we had new bits of information that were coming out of of the museum's work where they were finding new maker's marks or new artifacts that we were able to write about in the book. And then the other thing that we do in the book that has not been done elsewhere is we look at how the monitor has affected popular culture and marketing campaigns from 1862 until the present. And so this is, um, as you know, from 1862, that's when the famous battle occurs. What Can you just give us a thumbnail sketch of the battle? And then I want to talk about the history of the ship itself. Sure. So in 1861, the Confederates, or at that point, the Virginia militia, captured a, a Navy yard in near Norfolk called the Gosport Navy Yard. 
And prior to evacuating, the Union burned the Navy Yard and they destroyed the ships that they could there. One of the ships was known as the Merrimack, and they burned it and it, it burned down to the hull, but the hull was protected because it was in the water. And the Confederates were able to raise the ship out of the Elizabeth River and put it into dry dock, and they converted it into a ironclad casemate vessel. And the Union got word that the Confederates were building this ironclad ram, and so they decided to build an ironclad of their own, and they built the Monitor. The the Virginia, the Merrimack became known as the Virginia, the CSS Virginia. The Virginia came out of the Elizabeth River on March 8th, 1862, and destroyed several Union blockading vessels in Hampton Roads. While that battle was going on, the Monitor was making its way from New York down to Virginia to engage with the CSS Virginia. It got here one day too late. I say here because I, I live in Hampton Roads. I live about five mile, or five minutes away from the Mariner's Museum. But it got here about five, uh, one day too late. It arrived the evening of March 8th, 1862. The next day, she faced the Virginia for four hours. And they battled one another. They, they rammed at one another. They, they tried each other's armor uh, very thoroughly. And neither ship was able to win. It, it really ended in a draw. Both ships withdrew. And even though the battle itself ended in a draw, it changed naval warfare for all time. Leaders around the world, especially in Europe, were watching with eager anticipation to see what would happen. And they now knew when they saw this fight between iron versus iron that their wooden ships of the past were now obsolete. And so that's really uh, what is notable about this in terms of military history. It's not the actual use of the Monitor and the Virginia in the Civil War itself, um, or I should say at least in this battle, but rather it's the uh, seeming pinpoint turning point. We don't often have those in history where all of a sudden a new age looks like it's dawning, right? That's right. And you can see it in the newspaper reporting around the world. You can see it in the political cartoons that are coming out. We have 131 images in full color in the book. And one of them is actually a political cartoon from a French newspaper. I found it on eBay shortly before the book went to press and fortunately had enough time to buy it, scan it and include it. But it, it shows John Bull, who represents England, looking off into the distance with a telescope. And someone from Mexico is trying to get his attention. It's probably Maximilian. And John Bull says, leave me alone. I need to observe what's going on in the new world. And he's looking off in the distance at these ironclad vessels. And I thought that cartoon just gives such a wonderful sense of the, the need that foreign leaders felt to change what they were doing with their navies because of what was taking place here during the American Civil War. And as an aside, I should amplify what you just noted about the illustrations. You've got over 130 illustrations of all kinds of aspects of uh, Civil War photo photography, cartoons, as you note, and letters and diagrams, uh, drawings, etc. This is a uh, this is printed on a nice glossy um, type of paper. It's a uh, it's the kind of glossy paper we often see for. Uh, uh, um, tabletop books, but this is one that's scholarly and uh, beautifully written, of course, but also it's nicely illustrated. So I, I think that really adds a lot to the history of this. Thank you. So the appeal of iron is obvious um, as opposed to wood. 
what about the actual design of this going back before the actual battle and before the European and American leaders knew what they were really working with? What, what's the um, uh, so-called uh, philosophical approach to this new design? So the ship was like nothing else that had ever been built. The inventor, John Erickson, had actually been toying with the idea for some time. In fact, in the early 1850s, he had tried to sell a similar design to Napoleon III of France, and Napoleon turned it down. The way that the ship was designed, most of the ship's spaces were below the waterline. The only thing above the deck were a revolving gun turret, and the pilot house. The pilot house was where the commander of the monitor could look out and survey the battlefield, see what was going on in the waters around him. And then the gun turret was a revolving tower that had two 11-inch Dahlgren guns in it. And these guns were um, about nine tons each, about 13 feet long. But the, the beauty of the turret was that it could rotate and turn so that you could fire in any direction. And this was revolutionary. In the olden days, when wooden ships would fight against one another, they would have to basically pull up next to each other and fire broadsides. And so you would have these large wooden ships. They would have tons of guns on either side, and they would pull up next to each other and shoot and shoot and shoot until one of them went down. And you had to expose yourself in order to fight against your enemy. The monitor was a brilliant design because it could fire in any direction, and so it could attack from a, a position in which it was not as exposed. And not only that, because most of the vessel was beneath the waterline, the Confederates who were fighting against it were very frustrated because they felt like there was not much to fire at anyway. And so uh, these two ideas seem like they're separable. One on the, on the one hand, you've got a ship that offers very little uh, because it's at the, you know, so little of it is above the water. Uh, but on the other hand, you've also got this rotating turret. Now, had a turret of any kind never been used before? That's a good question. And I don't, in terms of on a vessel, I don't know of any. There were, mm -hmm. there were other designs for them at the time, but Ericsson's, I believe, was the first to be built. Okay. And so... The uh, conception of this is it's not uh, it never submerges. And no, this is not a submarine. This Correct. is all this is basically it is a surface ship and it's always going to be that it doesn't change. How, how how about weather fluctuations? In other words, what, what happens when a storm comes up? Is it more vulnerable? Well, yeah, it did have some problems when, on its first time sailing from New York down to Virginia where water leaked in and, and gas got trapped in and the men had to go above deck to in order to breathe. And then, you know, sailors have habits that die hard. And so shortly before the monitor sank, the monitor sank on, on New Year's Eve, 1862. So it didn't even survive a full year. And the men tried to alter it before they took the monitor to sea. And so they put oakum along the where the metal of the turret met the deck, thinking that they were waterproofing it, when in fact they probably broke the watertight seal. And that led to water pouring in when the monitor hit a gale off of Cape Hatteras on December 31st, 1862. That was not the inventor's fault. That was because of what the men were doing to the ship. But yeah, it and it ultimately did go down in a gale. And so how many actual um, encounters or, or uh, different battles did this ship engage in? 
So just the, one? The main battle was on March 9th, 1862. Then throughout the summer of 1862, she was used on the James River, and she never engaged the Virginia again. They sometimes would see each other in the distance and have sort of a stalemate, and Confederates on the shorelines of the James River would occasionally take shots at the, at the monitor so that the men were forced to stay below decks. But she never engaged in another full-scale battle again. She was in support when the Union attacked Norfolk in May of 1862 and captured Norfolk, but again, never fully engaged. And what was the crew complement? The crew would be between about 58 and 63. There were 58 men present at the Battle of Hampton Roads, and that was far smaller than the Virginia. The Virginia, before she was converted, had a complement of 519. After she was converted, had a complement of 320. And I believe she had about 260 at the battle itself. That's incredible. Um, What are all these guys doing if they're below decks? On the monitor? Yeah, yeah. Well, they are they're performing all sorts of different duties to make sure that the engine and machinery are working well. The paymaster even got involved. Um, the one of the defects of the original monitor that the, was at the pilot house was at the far front of the deck, and the turret was in the middle. And so the paymaster ended up having to run back and forth to deliver directions and instructions between the commander of the vessel and the men in the guns. And so the, um, you, you, I would imagine these are very hot conditions, um, below the waterline. You've got this engine going, um, they've got a lot of coal, I assume that they're feeding into the engine, right? That's right. And not and, only uh, that, but it, it, during the summer of 1862, it got extraordinarily hot. And so during, during the summer, it could get up to 140 degrees within the turret. And so not only do these men have functions, but as uh, some of your illustrations uh, depict, they also have needs. Uh, And so, for example, can you talk about the toilets? Sure. Well, the monitor had dozens of patentable inventions. I think the number that its inventor or engineer put out was 47 patentable inventions. And one of them was the world's first below the waterline flushing toilets. And the way that these worked was they had a series of valves that had to be turned in the in the right order. And when they were first used, the monitor surgeon, Daniel Logue, didn't know exactly the order that they had to be turned in. And so he used the facilities and then unfortunately turned these underwater flushing toilets into the world's first underwater working bidets. And so... Um... And, and so, if I could add one other thing about that, the, sure. the Mariner's Museum has a wonderful exhibit called Ahead of Its Time. And these are little cartoons about how sailors would go to the bathroom in different periods of world history. And they, they commissioned these cartoons to be made. And one of the cartoons shows Abraham Lincoln sitting on the monitor's underwater flushing toilet with the, wa- the water shooting back up at him. And if you visit the museum, you can see these. They have them hanging in all the different restrooms in the stalls. And so you can learn a little bit of history about uh, toilets in that way. And Lincoln did actually uh, see the monitor in person, right? He did. He visited it on several occasions in 1862. And he he was absolutely fascinated by the monitor. We don't know if he used the toilet, though. 
We don't, but the, the the Mariners Museum commissioned this drawing of Lincoln on the toilet, and so we were able to include it in the book at least. Yes. So the concept of this waterline ironclad, and it was was that what it was popularly called? Everybody referred to it as an ironclad. As an ironclad, yeah. Okay, and so um, the idea for this is, or the ultimate design that's implemented by the military is Ericsson's, but had this been conceived of say in Europe for European purposes before this, or do we know? Yeah. The monitor in Virginia were not the first ironclads in the world. The French had one, the British had one at the time of the civil war and people had been experimenting with this sort of technology for some time. In fact, there was actually a, a, a very early, I think 15th century Korean vessel that was a dragon ship that, that was also something of an ironclad. But the significance here is the design in the turret and then the fact that it's the first time that ironclads meet each other in battle. Okay. So this is really the testing of it. That's um, right. Okay. And so um, the the engineering for this did, and this may be something, I don't know if you're, you're qualified, quote unquote, for, for answering this, but in terms of the engineering difficulty, are, are there some problems that they faced in terms of, aside, we've talked about the the problems during the storms and so forth, but mm. are there engineering obstacles that were really tough to overcome in, in terms of implementing this? Well, when they first launched the Monitor on her first sort of test launch in the East River in New York City, the steering mechanisms were not quite working properly. And so the vessel bounced around the river and on spectators and journalists looked at this and thought, how on earth is this vessel going to work? And Ericsson was able to fix the the problem and then it worked fine. It's interesting that you asked the question that way. One of the things that people began to notice after the Battle of Hampton Roads was that the experience of being a sailor aboard a vessel like this was very different from the experience of being a sailor on a wooden vessel. And it was it was something that the men didn't fully know how to grapple with because they knew what traditional sailors did. They knew what traditional soldiers did. If you fought on a traditional warship, a wooden warship, or if you fought in a battle, if you were a Confederate charging along at Gettysburg and Pickett's Charge, you faced a lot of, a lot of danger in that. And you, in the process, you could attain honor and glory. And for the, for the men aboard the Monitor, they realized that there was little danger involved in fighting on one of these ships and that you wound up being more like an engineer, more like a factory worker than, than like a, a, a traditional sailor. So the paymaster of the, of the Monitor, a man named William Keeler, said there isn't even enough danger to give us any glory and literary figures of the period noticed this as well. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote about the monitor, and from his perspective, we were creating a race of engine men. He, he called them a race of engine men and smoke-blackened cannoneers who will hammer away at their enemies under the direction of a single pair of eyes. And when he reflected on this changing nature of warfare, he said, heroism will become a quality of very minor importance. And Herman Melville wrote an incredible poem after the Civil War called A Utilitarian View of the Monitor's Fight. 
And in that poem, he also reflected on that we had no longer warriors, but operatives who were who were running the machines of war, not even the ships, but the machines. And those perspectives are uh, somewhat reminiscent of their precursors to some of the debates that occurred during World War One with um, the use of machine guns mm-hmm. and dis- distance weapons. And of course, most recently, I suppose, uh, the debate about whether to award combat medals to the pilots of drones who are here right. in the U.S. and piloting things halfway around the world. And so philosophically, uh, did that impact the way the monitor was used in combat? In other words, did this concern about distance and automation and uh, uh, the diminishment perhaps of the individual's role, uh, did that affect the use of it? I don't know that it affected the use of it, but it certainly affected the way that people thought about their role on the ship and also the way that family members of traditional sailors felt about the monitor. They looked at the monitor with disgust and thought, why do these men get heaped with praises when they're not exposed to any danger? Mm-hmm. So uh, was this an, uh, at the time, was this a terribly expensive project to implement? It was. And, you know, I'm blanking on the exact price tag. Um, but one of the interesting things about the the monitor was that its inventor, John Erickson, when he signed his contract, he had to agree that he would not get paid for the vessel until it proved it proved itself in battle. And so he got investors together who were able to raise the capital to build it. And then he loved to say after the war that the Monitor was a privately owned ship when she went into the Battle of Hampton Roads on March 9th, 1862. And so the... Um, the expense that goes into it, does that affect the willingness of the military to develop further ironclads? Well, once they saw the success of the monitor, they ordered dozens, scores more, I think somewhere between 64 and 84 more they ordered uh, of ironclads, most on some sort of monitor based design because they saw the success of the ship. And so what was the, uh, the track record, if you will, of these uh, types of ships for the, the Union in the rest of the war? Well, they would be used in all sorts of different ways and places. Ironclads were used in terms of um, trying to capture Confederate forts and smaller vessels would be used in river warfare. And they had a very successful uh, track record, I think. And that can be seen in the fact that monitors or, or sort of turreted style gun uh, ships would be used for decades after the war, I think even as late as World War One, there were still ships known as monitors. They were different in design, but aspects of the design were still carried out in the American Navy. And how did the uh, Southerners view um, this, the outcome of uh, the Hampton Roads battle and uh, their use of ironclads? Well, they also ordered and started to build more and more ironclads. They had to destroy the Virginia. The Virginia was down in Norfolk, and uh, when the Union captured Norfolk in May of 1862, it left the Virginia without a home, and it wasn't the sort of vessel that would be able to break out and go to sea. And so in May of 1862, they had to destroy her. But they still built other ironclads with 
similar designs. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So um, the title of the book is Our Little Monitor. It's in quotes. Can you explain that? Yeah, we were trying to think about what to do in terms of a title. And one of the things we we kept coming across was people referring to our little monitor in their letters or in newspaper articles or the little monitor. And during the Civil War, there was a shortage of hard currency. And so one of the things that store owners started to do was print their own coins. And these would be penny-sized coins. And it was a great idea because they could print these things for less than a penny and then give them out as change. So they were actually making money giving out change. And one of the coins that circulated very widely had an image of the monitor on the front, and it had the phrase, our little monitor. And these things circulated so widely that if you go on eBay at any given time, you can see a dozen or more of these available for sale. And we thought that that coin captured the, the affection that most Northerners felt for the ship, that they, re, they really did see it as our little monitor. It was the monitor for as many other monitors that would be built during the war. This one was the first. This one was the one that captured the hearts of, of the people. And so we, we took that for the title of the book. And that echoes really another big concern that you have where you talk about the popular regard. In other words, this is not some obscure military technology. This is something that's really, uh, so to speak, propagandized. Uh, would that be the right word for it? And I mean, it's certainly well known and it becomes a symbol for the North. Yeah, that's right. It becomes a symbol of Yankee ingenuity, of, of a durable product, you might say. And so within a few days of the Battle of Hampton Roads, newspapers start carrying advertisements of people who have products they want to move. And the way that they decide to move these products is by connecting them to the monitor. And so they write very funny little poems about the monitor defeating the Virginia. And that begins... March of 1862 and carries forward all the way to the present with the monitor showing up in advertisements and popular culture. I remember watching an episode of Gilligan's Island once when I was younger and Gilligan and the skipper are in the lagoon and this World War II ship comes up and they go down to look at it. And Gilligan turns to the skipper and says, which one is it, the monitor or the Merrimack? I mean, the monitor <laughs> has been ubiquitous in American culture. So, so what sustains that, though? In other words, uh, you're, you're right, and you give plenty of evidence of this throughout the, the book where you reproduce some of these advertisements that from the 1930s and 40s that, that reference the monitor. So what, what enables that popular memory to take hold? During the Civil War era itself, I think it's just the nature of the ship's place in the Civil War. And then that carries over into the Gilded, Gilded Age and I think even into the Progressive Era where people were just fascinated by this ship. And one of the things we looked at that didn't work its way into the book as much, although um, it's in there, 
1907, there was a major celebration of the 300th anniversary of Jamestown. And as part of that celebration, they brought the last surviving Civil War monitor, the Canonicus, to Hampton Roads, and, and people just flocked to see it. And then they made a very large electronic display that recreated the Battle of Hampton Roads. And in that display, they were very careful. This was an age of reconciliation between Northerners and Southerners. And so they were very careful in that display to not have a winner, to not say the Monitor won or the Virginia won. And that way, no matter who came, whether you were a Civil War veteran from the North or from the South, you could find some satisfaction in, in watching this recreation. And that, that recreation of the battle was so popular that it went on tour and it toured all over the country. It went to Pittsburgh and Chicago and Seattle and other cities. And I think it took a message of the the role or the place of the monitor, not only in American history, but in world history. And it, and it gave Americans a sort of sense of gratification that they had built these ships that changed the way warfare would be carried on throughout the world. And from that point forward, I think into the mid 20th century, the monitor has had a special place in American memory, in movies and in in products in the 1930s there or 20s and 30s there was a, a general electric refrigerator that was built that had the motor on top and the 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 motor looked like a turret and so it became known as the monitor top turret and throughout the mid 20th century people would have these refrigerators in their homes and it was it was a reminder of of the monitor just because of how it looked you would see the monitor used to inspire sewing machines or farm equipment all sorts of things. I think today the Monitor's strongest hold is in the Hampton Roads area, in part because it's where the battle took place and in part because it's where uh, the turret is being being conserved. But if you come to this area, you can find microbreweries and distilleries that are making drinks that are inspired by the Monitor. There's a ironclad bourbon distillery here that I like to frequent. And if you buy their bottles of bourbon, they actually, you can peel the label back and they have the design, the blueprint of the monitor in one. Uh, there's two distil- or two uh, breweries here. One makes a beer called 1862 and another has a number of beers inspired by the monitor. They're located at Fort Monroe and they have all of their beers inspired by the fort's history. And so one of theirs is a place called Ouzelfinch. One of theirs is a beer called Short Fuse, which was inspired by one of the sailors who had a hot temper and got drunk a lot and, and wound up getting in a lot of trouble. And so it's fun being a Civil War historian here in Hampton Roads and seeing how the Monitor still has a, a big part of the popular culture here, especially in the, the brewing world. Yeah, and of course, the the interesting thing is this is a uh, this is the heart of the Confederacy, and mm-hmm. so uh, the Monitor's a Union ship. Uh, was there a division uh, that could be sensed in the way that popular memory remembered? Because I, rem- I I grew up in the South myself in North Carolina, and I remember uh, even before I knew much about the Civil War, you heard the phrase Merrimack and Monitor. You mm-hmm. heard that together, um, and. And eventually you find out what, what the words mean. But uh, so it's this, uh, these two titles, these two names are very popular, at least, you know, in, in, when I was growing up in the 1970s, they were, uh, 
and so is there a, a division or a difference in perception of popular memory about the monitor versus the Merrimack um, in terms of ironclads or at least, you know, as you mentioned, these advertisements and these tours of the battle go on. And it, thankfully, from the perspective, I guess, of popular memory, it was a draw. So you couldn't clearly say that one <laughs> one versus the other. But is there a division in the perception? Yeah, you know, I think that the Virginia was never used as widely in marketing campaigns as the monitor. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is I think there was just more manufacturing and more invention in the North in the period of the Civil War and then in the decades following the Civil War, so that the monitor was going to be used in those ways in a way that the Merrimack would not. It's interesting, the one type of product in the Civil War era that I found that they were used together was for cigars. For some reason, in the, and it may be that tobacco is a product that appealed to people from all over the country, especially border regions where you would have a number of Confederate sympathizers, places like Kentucky and West Virginia. And so I, I found that in the 1860s and 70s, Monitor and Merrimack were used together for cigars or for cigarette cards. If you would get tobacco cards in the 1880s and 90s, they would often feature the two ships together. But other than that, it was usually the monitor that was used as as the main sort of cultural reference in marketing campaigns, at least. By the mid-20th century, though, they are again used together. And one of my favorites is a, a Seagram's gin ad from the 1930s or 40s that talked about the monitor and the Merrimack as American originals. And it said they revolutionized the navies of the world. And I think for Seagram's, they realized that after this period of reconciliation, you wanted to appeal to people from both parts of the country. And so you, you would mention both vessels. And I think since that sort of 20th century period, uh, beginning with the Jamestown Exposition and then moving forward, you see the Monitor and the Merrimack used together very frequently, especially in Virginia. You have the Monitor Merrimack Bridge. Um, but yeah, I, in the early period, I think most of the focus in popular culture was on the Monitor itself. But as we've moved away from the war, it's been more of a joint thing. Right. And here's a question. This just pops to mind. Um, I have no idea what the answer to this might be. And maybe you don't either. It's, it sounds like something that would be the subject of an obscure article in an mm -hmm. academic journal. Um, I wonder if there were a lot of patent infringement suits after the war during after Reconstruction for copying of northern ideas once the unions back together. Do we have any idea uh, what became of the inventions that were quote unquote infringed upon by uh the do south they do you mean the inventions on board the monitor or yeah. inventions that were used to, it, well i'm I, it brought it could be a broad question about right. you know just patent infringement once the unions back together for anything um i would be curious to know if we have rates since it's all federal uh there might be uh trends in uh, filings after the war, but I, I, were there a lot of intellectual property disputes that came out of the designs in the Monitor? That's a very good question, and I don't know in terms of um, the those 47 patentable inventions on board the Monitor. The one that's very famous involved a man named Theodore Timby, who held a patent for a turret concept. And so he was livid that 
Erickson was able to build this ship and that Erickson got the credit for it. And if, if memory serves correct, I believe that Timby actually did get royalties of some sort off of the sale of or the use of monitor turrets because hmm. he had had a patent in advance of it. So, John, in thinking about um, your title, Our Little Monitor, of course, it talks about the popular memory, but your subtitle is, uh, is important to it the greatest invention of the Civil War. Um, you've talked about how important this was to uh, other nations. They were looking at this as a testing of this idea of ironclads. Uh, what makes it the greatest invention? Well, we think it, we use that as the subtitle in part to capture the, the nature of this ship, that she wasn't just a ship, but she was a machine, and the sense that she had all of these patentable inventions on her. Uh, I, I think she was the greatest invention of the Civil War because of how she changed naval warfare around the world, that it didn't just have the impact of a four-hour battle in Hampton Roads, Virginia, but it caused it caused world leaders to have to change their strategies for how they would construct their navies. And, of course, at the time, this is the 1860s, the greatest uh, seaborne empire in the world history is the British Empire. Um did the British uh, really take to ironclads for a time? Yeah, I think navies around the world realized and started to have to build them. The British had an ironclad before, the HMS Warrior, but she'll then just be the first of many. Right. She's going to be implemented as a typical design. Now, are there a lot of variations on this? You, you mentioned Ericsson's not the only one, obviously, who, who's designing these things. Um, and, and so are the variations important or are they kind of just uh, minor in terms of their differences? Well, they, they do variations to try to improve the design and they could have variations in terms of um, the number of turrets. They could have a double turreted monitor. But the biggest improvement that comes with Ericsson is moving the pilot house so that um, so that you don't have this problem of the commander not being able to uh, communicate with the men who are firing the guns. Now, part of your um, history is a essentially a narrative of the history of its design implementation, the popular reception of it during and after the war. But also there's a section uh, of the book that is essentially primary sources where you quote at length, uh, sometimes in full, uh, diary entries or letters. And uh, it really gives this unique perspective on what's going on, what you know, these historical actors who are, who would otherwise be probably obscure, um, what they perceive about the monitor and, uh, ironclads. Why, why did you include those? We wanted to give readers a sense of a, sort of an immersive experience where they could read. So part one is our narrative. And then part two are, as you said, these collections of letters and diaries and newspaper clippings from the period we wanted readers to be able to see the work, the experience of the people who saw the monitor or in, or encountered her or watched the battle in their words themselves. And so each of the chapters in part two looks at a different aspect of the monitor's history. And so we we transcribe the logbook of the captain of the ship that towed the monitor down to. Um, 
or escorted the Monitor down to the Battle of Hampton Roads. We have newspaper clippings that traced the Monitor's experience of being repaired at the Washington, D.C. Navy Yard in the fall of 1862. Or we have eyewitness accounts of men who watched the Battle of Hampton Roads. And these give readers a chance to just read the unadulterated words of of these eyewitnesses. My favorite chapter, I think, or my favorite chapters of that section, we have one chapter that looks at the sinking of the monitor from the perspective of several of the men who survived the sinking of the monitor or who witnessed the sinking of the monitor. And those are just really powerful emotional letters. And then we also have a chapter that we call Lincoln's Mailbag, And it's interesting that after the Battle of Hampton Roads, there were many Northerners who were just terrified that the Virginia might come out and wreak more havoc, maybe attack Washington, D.C. and shell the Capitol. And so they sent letters to Abraham Lincoln trying to persuade him, the Virginia is dangerous and I have an invention that can stop her. And if you'll only pay me however many thousands of dollars, you can use my invention. And so we reproduce a number of these letters, and then we also have a couple dozen photographs of these sort of drawing patent, these, these drawings that inventors, and I use the word inventor lightly or loosely here, but that they would send to Lincoln to try to illustrate what their designs were. And whenever I, I go out and talk about the, the monitor to audiences, I always love to show these pictures of these inventions because you look at them and some of them are beautifully done and some, some of them are very forward looking to inventions that would come about in the 20th century, like torpedoes. And then others of them look like they might have been drawn by a five or six year old. And you wonder how on earth did this person think it was a good idea to send this to Abraham Lincoln? So in working on this, um, you're, you're a Civil War historian, and uh, this is uh, well within your bailiwick uh, of expertise. Did your work on this change any of your perspectives on not so much the monitor or ironclads, but on the war itself? Or did it add to anything that you had believed about the war? It gave me a new appreciation for naval and maritime history. I I've been in the Hampton Roads area for about 10 years, and I had never really appreciated the importance of the maritime aspect of the Civil War until I moved here and started to engage with that history more. And so it was, it was a lot of fun to be able to work on this book and learn more of that history. And of course, this is not um, history that ends in the 19th or even early 20th century. You, this is, as you mentioned or alluded to earlier, this is an ongoing historical investigation about the Monitor. Can you explain some of what's currently uh, occurring in regard to this? Sure. So if you were to visit the Mariner's Museum, you would see a number of the artifacts on display that have been conserved in recent years. And my favorite is actually a wool coat that when they discovered it in the turret of the monitor, it looked like a clump of mud and you can find pictures of it. And over a period of years, they have very carefully um, flattened it out and conserved it. And now when you look at it, you can see the, the torso and the arms of this coat. And it's just amazing to look at the photographs of the before and then to see the after on display. 
they are still working on the turret and the guns and the engine and the gun carriages. And it's going to take, I think, another 10 years until those are fully conserved. But visitors to the museum can go and stand on a a platform and look down into these giant tanks that have chemical solutions in them, slowly pulling the salt out of the, uh, the metal of these artifacts. And in the, I I'm able to occasionally do sort of backstage tours of, of the conservation area. And you can just see the thousands of tiny artifacts that they are um, they're pulling together and, and preserving and a lot of these then go on display. One of my favorites, actually, is they have a, a broken bottle of Gray's hair restorative on display in the Monitor Center. And they found this in the turret. And it may be that there were bald sailors on the Monitor. But it also is likely that the men drank it for its alcohol uh, content. In July of 1862, Congress got rid of the grog ration that sailors received effective September 1st, 1862. Of course, the men still wanted to be able to have alcohol. And so one of the things you can learn from this sort of archaeology is that they, when you find a bottle of hair restorative, it's very possible that the men had this on board because of the booze content, not so much because it could help them regrow their hair. This is so reminiscent of the history of the world and several drinks uh, approach. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, the uh, the monitor is a fixture in popular memory still, um, and the uh, the history of it is really this ongoing history of restoration, conservation. Um, and is this uh, is the Maritime Museum is this a, a publicly funded museum or is it privately funded? The Mariners Museum is a is a private museum. They do receive grants, and NOAA helps fund the conservation of the monitor of the turret and the artifacts. Okay. Are there any similar uh, programs in regard to the Merrimack or Virginia? Well, the Virginia was destroyed, and and so there aren't many pieces of her left. the okay. The Mariners Museum has what is believed to be the steering wheel of the Virginia. And then there are a lot of pieces of the Virginia out there. Um, if you go on eBay at any given time, you can see people selling what they claim to be pieces of the Virginia, although I don't know what the provenance on them would be. Sure. Well, the book is entitled Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. And we've been joined today by one of the co-authors, Jonathan W. White. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me.